Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we first recorded our interview with Dennis and Lee Horton, they had just gotten out of prison on a sentence commutation less than a year prior. And that happened in large part because of the incredible efforts of John Fetterman. After losing the 2016 Democratic Senate primary, John set his sights on winning the lieutenant governorship, which put him on the pardons and parole board. He then campaigned his fellow board members for the Horton's clemency, and despite a denial in 2019, John never gave up on the Hortons. By the time we recorded this episode, Dennis and Lee were already hard at work campaigning for John on his 2022 Senate race. It was truly surreal to see Dennis and Lee reacting to the win on social media. What a turn of fate, from wrongfully convicted to having a true friend in the United States Senate. We're re-releasing this episode to congratulate our great friends, Dennis, Lee, and John. On May 31, 1993, Dennis Horton went to his brother Lee's home for a Memorial Day weekend cookout. Later in the day, they visited their father in North Philadelphia, as well as their childhood friend Robert Leaf. Unbeknownst to the Hortons, Robert Leaf had committed an armed robbery earlier that day in which two women were injured and one man was fatally shot. The Hortons pulled up to their friend Robert Leaf on the street and made plans to watch a basketball game back at Lee's. Robert asked the brothers to meet him one block up where he got into their car with a gun. Police had been following Robert and immediately pulled them over where all three men were arrested. The two injured women, who initially had said that there were only two armed robbers, 
gave a shaky ID of all three men, sending them to trial together. Robert Leaf's attorney used confusion amongst the witnesses over the identities of the three men to change the narrative from Robert Leaf as the shooter to Dennis, delivering a lighter sentence to the actual culprit while the Hortons were sentenced to life without parole. Years later, a statement by Robert Leaf admitting his role and excluding the Horton brothers was unearthed, along with the fact that police had identified Robert Leaf as the shooter from the very start. However, with this new evidence being ruled inadmissible on purely procedural grounds, it took the tireless advocacy of Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman to win a commutation and release for the brothers after nearly three long decades in prison. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. My best advice to you right now is fasten your seatbelt because this is going to be a crazy ride that you're about to go on. But before I introduce the two brothers who were wrongfully convicted of the same crime together and ended up serving almost 27 years together in the same cell for the crime they didn't commit, I just want to say that uh, this is Philadelphia in the 90s. You've heard stories on here before about Philadelphia in the 90s. And it was it was the time and place where a black man had a better chance of getting justice in Philadelphia, Mississippi than in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this is another example of that. So without further ado, let me introduce to you. I'm so excited to have these guys on the show today because they're such inspiring people. Lee and Dennis Horton, the brothers Horton. <laughs> Welcome to Wrongful Conviction. All right. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing out there? I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us on. So let's get right into it. First of all, I want to say to both of you guys that while I am obviously delighted to have you on the show, I'm sorry that you're here because of what you had to go through and it should have never happened. So let's go back to the beginning. I'm talking about how was childhood for you guys growing up together? Well, you moved to Philly in 77, right? But give us a quick look at what your childhood was like. So when we was young growing up, we lived uneventful, but a wonderful life. You know, my mom and my father was married in the early 60s. There's four of us, four kids. We grew up in some of the roughest places in the city, but our family, my mom, my grandmother, my father always instilled in us that you had to work for what you wanted in life. And so we started working at an early age. My mom and father, unfortunately, they split up in 1972. My mom, she was trying to take care of four kids on her own. We wound up moving to the projects, which was at the time East Falls Projects. I was around 12 years old. My brother was seven at the time. So the projects was a rough projects. You know, you had to prove to people up there that you was willing to fight in order for you to be able to stay or they chase you out the projects. That's how it was. And so... I had got into a fight with an individual and I won the fight. That was a blessing to some degree, but it was also a curse because now I was at odds with a lot of guys my age, 12 and 13 year olds in the projects. And one day I wound up on the wrong side of the projects when we was approached by a group of individuals. And it was maybe about 20 something, 30 guys. And they approached us and they wanted me to fight a guy and you know, there was a bunch of guys that was about to jump us. And then these other guys came out of nowhere and came to our rescue. And it was only a few of them, but they were like the neighborhood tough guys to some degree. 
One of these guys who would become a really good friend of mine was an individual named Robert Leaf. And so I fell in with these guys and we became really good friends. He came to my house, stayed at my house, slept at my house, ate at my house. My mom, to some degree, became his mom. And then in 1983, we moved out of the projects. By that time, we kind of veered off a little bit, although I would go see my friends who were still living in the projects and some living in North Philadelphia from time to time. And so now we move up towards the time of the actual crime. And I'm talking about Memorial Day weekend, May 31st, 1993. So there was an armed robbery at Felito's Bar. Now, initial descriptions say it was two men, but later it was changed to three. One man with a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle and another with a black pistol robbed the bar and its patrons. Samuel Alimo, six foot three and over 200 pounds, wrestled with the gunman for the gun, but was overpowered and was shot and killed. Luz Archella and Luz Martinez were injured, but both recovered. And a witness described chasing after the fleeing assailants who saw them in a small blue car and supplied police with a partial license plate number. And again, remember, this is Philadelphia in the 90s. So we'll get to the, you know, myriad problems with the state story. But first, let's hear your story. So it's Memorial Day weekend, May 31st, 1993. Lee, you had four kids, right, including a two-week-old baby. And at the time, Dennis, you were just recently engaged to be married and had also recently been badly injured at work and were recovering, right? So you were in absolutely no condition to be engaging in hand-to-hand combat wrestling, right? With a very large man, right? Strong man. So can you take us through that day, the day that this armed robbery and murder, this whole tragedy happened? So Lee and his wife invited me and my fiance at the time over to his house So, of course, I went to Lee's house, had a cookout with him and his wife and his kids. And later on that evening, we decided we was going to take a ride. You know, we'd been in the house all day, stopped by my father's house, see him. And then Lee was going to stop by just to see a few guys that he knew. And we headed for North Philadelphia, where my father lived at the time. And we swung by his house, but his light was out, so he was asleep. So Lee said, "Okay, let's stop around Lee's house. So, you know, we drove around Lee's house. He was standing out on the corner with some other guys and Lee beat the horn and Leaf came over to the car and him and Lee talked for a little bit. So Robert Leaf was supposed to come back to Lee's house. We was going to watch a basketball game. So Leaf said, pull up a block and I'll be there. And I got to just take care of something real quick. And we pulled up to the block and Leaf came maybe about 10, 15 minutes later, got in the car and then we pulled off. And about a couple of blocks later, we saw sirens and we pulled over. And the police jumped out of their vans and cars with guns drawn and told us to get out of the car. And we got out of the car and they handcuffed us and they put us into the paddy wagon. And then they took us to the hospital when the identification take place. And all I remember is that the van doors opened up. And next thing you know, I seen, I think, two ladies point to Robert Leaf and say, yeah, that's the guy right there. And then they said, well, what about these other guys? And they said, yeah, them too. They were with them too. And then they shut the doors back and then that was it. And next thing you know, we were down at Roundhouse where they charge you for a homicide. So, okay, right away we see problems emerge with what the witnesses are describing, right? The alleged number of individuals involved in the robbery went from, well, it went up 50%, right? From two to three. And when you're there at the hospital, 
in the police paddy wagon right outside the hospital with the witnesses saying, yeah, them too. Also, one of the witnesses described a blue car and gave a partial plate number. So did that match your own vehicles? The only witness who claimed to see the car said it was a blue small car. It was supposed to be a Chevy Chevette. He said the name of the car in his statement. Now, Lee's car is a Caprice Classic. A four-door, large car. Two tones, two different colors. But this witness, for some reason, we could never find him and never bring him to trial. The person the police put down as giving out this partial plate number, when we got the witness on the stand, she said right then and there, I never gave the police anything. I never saw a car. So how could I have ever given him that? Your name is on this paper, though. They said you gave it to him. She said, it's impossible. I didn't see a car. I didn't give him anything. And the thing about the officers who did this, first thing, you got to give you a context of who these officers are. The first officer was somebody who had strangled a guy early on. And then later, right after we was arrested, he shot a guy unarmed in a car. The second officer, she was involved in internal affairs investigation about a large quantity of drugs being found in the police station and them suspecting or connecting it to her. As you start peeling the layers away, you start seeing that there's more to this than just the police picking up some guys and they were involved. So I have to ask, do you think that they knew from the beginning that you guys had nothing to do with this? That's a really good question. In our heart of hearts, we believe in the beginning, maybe they wasn't sure. But as things begin to unfold, they had to be clear that we weren't involved in it. Just didn't care. And the reason why we know is because the prosecutor came to us with a deal. It was like five to 10 years. And we were like, we're innocent. We're not taking any deal. Why should we take any deal to go to jail for when we didn't do anything? And now it was sort of like, okay, you won't take the deal? All right, well, the chip's going to fall where they may. Right. And it's very uncommon that in a crime as serious as this one, an armed robbery where someone was was killed, right, that they're going to offer someone, two guys in this case, five years, right? You know, you don't have to be a legal scholar to figure this one out. So now we get to the trial and all three of you, Lee, Dennis and Robert Leaf are tried together and they have three witnesses. Now I'm going to put witnesses in quotation marks here. Three of them came to trial, and they eventually identified Dennis as the shooter. But did they have any physical evidence at all, any fingerprints, any security footage? There was no security footage. What they had was they actually had the gun they said was the murder weapon. They never actually could trace it to any bullets they got out of the body. They didn't match. But this is the gun that Leaf had on him. He left the gun in the car. The cops retrieved it. And when they checked it, it had fingerprints. But we've been always trying to get these fingerprints checked because they could never trace them to any of us. If they took all of our fingerprints, they didn't fit any of us. Now, the way that my brother got to become the shooter is a clear case of mistaken identification. Initially in the case, they all identified Robert Lee as the shooter. And this way, the whole case turns. If this don't ever happen, we probably would have walked. The one witness would identify a different person every hearing. When she identified Robert Lee, Robert Lee's attorney, he would read the notes of testimony of her identifying my brother. Until it got to the point where when the judge asked her, well, who are you saying did this? She said, I'm going to say it's the one right there. And she was identifying me. And we had already told the court that they was identifying us based where we were sitting at. So we switched seats. So when we switched seats, she was identifying based on who the witness before her told her to identify. And then she thought, that the person was sitting in that seat, but it wound up being me, Lee Horton. When she heard my name, she said, hold it. What's the name? 
And the judge said, why do you want to know the name? Because uh, Dennis did it. It's Dennis. He said, Dennis? And then she said, yeah, I heard him. They was calling Dennis. And then after that, we were in the case. And they knew that this woman just had made this up out of the sky just right then and there. Everybody refused to pull back. And they could have corrected that right then and there and said, well, hold up, Your Honor. She's wrong. Mr. Leaf was wearing a red jacket. We know that for sure. That's a fact. They identified him as the shooter. That's a fact. They didn't say any of that. They just let the witnesses go on and on and on with these wrong identifications. And this woman had identified every last one of us as the shooter at one given time. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's Legal Access Program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide. Three weeks prior to our arrest, I had injured my leg on my job in such a fashion that I needed an ACL repair. The holiday was on a Monday. I was supposed to go talk about the day that week I was going to have the surgery done. I just came off the crutches. So when we were arrested, it was impossible for me to be able to wrestle with this guy. I think they said he was like 6'4", 6'3", something like that. I was supposed to have overpowered him, wrestled all the way to the ground with this guy, overpowered the gun out of his hand. And then after I was supposed to have shot him, I was supposed to have ran away as fast as I could. There was no way I could run on that leg at all. And my medical records and all that would have shown that, would have proved that. And this would have disqualified me from even remotely possibly being the shooter. And the thing is, they knew this, but nobody cared. So you both had different lawyers. So two people who were supposed to be working on your behalf. What were they doing with all of this information at trial? We made the mistake of a friend of my mom's told her, that their son could be a good lawyer for us, and we accepted that. But he wasn't a criminal defense attorney. He had not tried one criminal case, and he wound up being the person putting our defense together. My lawyer had been retired, and he was kind of older, and he was a little out of step. We were just not prepared for a capital case. Now, the difference is Robert Leaf was prepared. He knew the system, and he knew how to work the system. We was naive. We thought that we were innocent, and it was going to be shown, and it never was. Like, literally, if you put this in a movie, you say, well, one guy's represented by a friend of a friend who never tried a criminal case before. This is capital murder we're talking about. And the other guy's tried by a guy that they literally pulled out of retirement and wheeled him into the courtroom. You guys didn't even know that you're doomed. You're thinking, hey, we go in, tell the truth. You were the only guys in the courtroom telling the truth. That's the only problem, right? And that doesn't work. And that's the thing that, you know, even now gets to me a little bit because... I spent 27 years in prison when this could have been nipped in a bit early on. And I didn't have to never go to prison. After 27 years, you know, sometimes in your mind, you think, well, you should have took that. But what would we have said? 
We didn't commit the crime. We didn't know anything about it. It took us 28 years to learn enough about this case to be able to talk about it where though we knew some of the facts that happened. We had to find in the police file, they went to court knowing that these witnesses was identifying my brother, but they had determined that Leaf was the shooter. The prosecutors knew this. The detectives knew this. But this is the problem with the system. Nobody cared about the truth. It was about let's get the conviction at all costs. Okay, so they knew you weren't involved from the jump. But since you wouldn't plea to lesser charges that you knew and I think they knew were false, they threw you into this kangaroo court situation tied to Robert Leaf, who was the actual culprit here. And then let the chips fall where they may. That's how they put it, right? So then you were represented by people who had no business whatsoever really even being in this courtroom, right? I mean, definitely not as lawyers in a capital murder case. And you're literally on trial for your lives. So what was that like? I can tell you what it was like. Robert Leaf's attorney communicated with our attorneys, and they supposedly had a joint defense. And right towards the time the jury was going out to deliberation, I remember my attorney looking back and saying, I don't think that his attorney was with us. And I said, you think like he was doing everything in his power to get his client the best possible verdict he could get. He used the defense to paint a picture so that we would wind up with the most out of this. And his client would, if not walk free, get the lease. So the jury goes out. They come back in four or five hours later. Did you guys have hope that they were going to actually see the light and that you were going to be vindicated? I mean, was this a blur of a moment? Of course, you hold out hope that the system is going to do the right thing. I mean, we were raised like everybody else, watching police shows and court shows. And from what they show on TV, it always seemed like the system does the right thing. That everything would turn out right, even though everything was looking wrong. We believed in the system to the point where I had put an application to the police force prior to being arrested. Like around the time when I got convicted, my wife received a letter saying that I was accepted to go to the next phase. Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like you had, this was like an alternate reality, a life that should have been, right? But, okay, so the jury comes back in and the verdict is guilty. I mean, can you tell us about that moment? It's, I mean, it's obviously horrible for anyone who experiences it, but here it's worse because one brother had to hear the other brother being declared guilty, followed by being declared guilty himself. I got to tell you, being the oldest, I probably was the weakest. When I heard the verdict, it was like I was in a state of shock. And my legs buckled. And I remember I felt like I was going down to the floor. And I remember hearing my grandmom's voice in the back saying, stand up real loud. Don't you fall on that ground. Stand up. That part, I ain't never going to forget. When they rendered the verdict, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. Like, this wasn't happening. Like, somebody's going to come in and say, we're just kidding. This is not how it's supposed to end for us. I mean... We played by the rules. You know, we were taught to work hard for whatever we get in life, and that's what we did. We were taught to mind the people in the neighborhood, the elders, to respect people, you know, that this don't happen to decent people. And it was crazy because he immediately sentenced us to life without the possibility of parole. 
Immediately. Immediately. And, you know, when our families got a chance to speak on our behalf, each one of our family members got up there. They said that we didn't commit the crime and the judge got mad at some point. I think he told my sister that if you want to say that they didn't commit this crime, then no need to get up here. I done heard enough of that. So, I mean, we were distraught beyond words can describe it. I became angry, angry at the system, angry at myself for allowing myself to even be in that situation around a guy like this. And as time went on, my grandmother came to see us, my grandmother, my mother, and we would just complain and complain about everything that was going on. We was talking about how dark prison was, you know, how cold it always seems to be in there, you know, how these folks around here, they don't care about anything. And I remember my grandmother said, you know, if it's cold, then heat it up with love. And if it's dark, then light it up with hope. And my brother and I, we looked at each other and said, Grandma must have lost her mind. We was looking at each other like, is this lady for real? Like, did she realize that we in the prison for a crime we didn't commit? And she telling us to do what? So the thing is, it didn't make sense to us at that time. But as the years would go by and we would begin the process, like reading, you know, self-help books, history books, psychology books. And we would begin to take in the various programs that was available to us to educate ourselves. And we would go to the law library at least five days a week. And we would just be in there for hours reading this law, trying to decipher this law these cases and figure out ways how to argue and plead because at some point we had to take over our own representation because the lawyers, they were assigning us was up to par. And through that process, the more we became educated, the anger got directed in a different direction. And that anger all of a sudden started becoming more about helping men in prison that was wrongfully convicted as well. Men that got more time than they should have. The revenge was going to be is to try to send as many guys home as we could that would not come back to prison. And he talks about the law library. In that law library, we had a couple of tables of men who are all home now, who all been exonerated. All of us was at those tables. In 1995, we all sitting around a table. And as the years went by, more and more men came into the institution and they would sit at those tables. And at the end of the day, it was two of us left. At the time, nobody was going home. Years later, everybody started trickling out. So eventually we would get transferred to a, another prison, which was a treatment facility more so geared towards programming and things like that. And so this prison, which was SEI Chester, was kind of tailor-made for men like Lee and I. And one of the first things that we do is become certified peer support specialists. That means we work with people who struggle with mental health issues, struggle with all kinds of issues, addiction struggle with anger issues, people who just having a hard time adjusting to prison life. And um, we went to work and they started seeing how the assault on officers rate on staff started to drop. They started seeing the rate on prison on prisoner assaults drop, write-ups started to drop. Everything in the prison started getting better as a result of the Certified Peer Support Specialist Program. And from there, we began to branch out into other areas, the warden, the uh, superintendent and the deputy superintendent allowed Lee and I to be able to facilitate many of programs. You know, we facilitated programs like Thresholds, which was a six-step decisional making program. We taught men how to make better decisions in their lives so that they can also get through prison much better, but not only get through prison, but go home to their families and do better in society. We facilitated a health and wellness program. And through this program, we founded the day of responsibility in that particular institution. 
what we did was we created a play and the play would have areas in it where we would talk about recidivism, the impact of crime, dysfunction, trauma. I think it took us like 55, 57 people to put this play on. And it was like a full production. We put the roles out for men to sign up and they had to try out for the parts. It was so widely successful that the administration said, well, hey, listen, why you guys didn't do this bigger? So we went on to do another three more plays within that institution. And we went from 57 people being involved to the year after that, 100 and something people was involved. The following year, we put workshops on right after the play. So not only did we do the play, but we also put together 20 to 30 workshops where we would talk about these various things that were plaguing our community. And in those workshops, we would invite people from the community, organizations from the community that was involved in stopping violence like ceasefire and universities to come in, students and professors. We would invite politicians to come in. So while you're doing this amazing work, you're also, of course, you know, simultaneously fighting to overturn your own wrongful convictions. But so much of the information that you were discovering, exculpatory evidence, right, tons of it, was time barred, which means it was held back, you know, barred from being introduced because of procedural bullshit. I mean, it was a lot of things that we came like, you know, the police officer, when we found out about the internal affair investigation, they said, that was public information that we should have known about it, even though we had no idea that she was going through this. So how would we even know to look for it? So that was time barred. We had a witness, an individual we ran across who Robert Leaf had confessed to because he was also incarcerated. When we met him, they said that wasn't usable because he's a prisoner. So of course he would help you. They use confessions against you, but you can't use one from somebody to get out of prison. But he said clearly what happened. Robert Leaf made a statement. And in his statement, he identified the person he was with as somebody named Eddie. And in the statement, he said clearly when they said that this man died, they they believed he did it at the time because they took his jacket and they did paraffin tests on it. They did nitrate tests on his hands and all this kind of stuff like this. And he said, if the man died, it was his time to die. Then if I got to do the time for it, then I'll do the time for it. That's what he said in his statement. And he said something in the statement referring to us that put us not even with him. So everything that we would get would be time barred. So we spent 20 years pretty much fighting to overcome procedural hurdles. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we was transferred to SEI Chester, a staff member who was watching us, at the time he was a counselor, and he started talking to us in general conversation. And then one day he called us in there and he asked what was we doing to get out of prison. And we told him about our fight in the courts and about our innocence and everything like this. And he said, you know, I believe y'all. I really believe everything you've been telling me. And he is the one that suggested to us that we file for commutation. And at the time, we told him that we were actually innocent and that wasn't the venue for commutation. And he spent months trying to convince us to file for commutation. And just to give in, just to agree with him, we said, okay. And he introduced us to a professor whose name is Kathleen Brown, who helped a lot of other guys with commutation applications. And she came to see us. We told her our story, and she said, well, won't you file an actual innocence application? She said, it'll be the first one, but just write and just tell them what you told me. And that's what we did. 
And the first time we went before the board of pardons, we was denied and we were distraught. And around that time, my mom was sick and she passed away not too long after that. And she was our sole supporter. We didn't talk a lot about her, but she was the person that was fueling our fight for all those years. You know, my grandma's word just kept ringing in our ears that keep fighting. And we had developed a philosophy of free men have to free themselves. So we went back to the courts and then we filed for reconsideration and that was denied. And then we came back and filed for reconsideration again, and they granted the reconsideration based on some other stuff. But right before that, the Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman started taking up our cause. He looked at our application, he seen everything in it, and he just started doing what it was the right thing to do. And he started fighting for us. And the rest is history. I am Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, and I also chair of the Board of Pardons and Commutations here. And I became acquainted with Dennis and Lee's case during one of their reapplications for commutation. And when I read through it, I was blown away that these men were ever in prison, let alone struggling to be sent home. It's, their background is astonishing. In Pennsylvania, the Board of Pardons requires a unanimous vote. Of five members, it has to be unanimous. If you don't get that threshold, that person is going to die in prison. And that, to me, triggered a campaign to make sure that Lee and Dennis would be able to return to their families because this is a gross miscarriage of justice. Not only are they profoundly deserving that they have always maintained their innocence. Everyone believes that these men, including the warden and the Department of Corrections, that they have no business being in prison. And I'm so grateful that they're out on so many levels. In fact, I actually hired them to work on our campaign. They are far better a person and stronger a person than I could ever be. For what they went through to have emerged with the kind of humanity that they just radiate is nothing short of remarkable. So, paint a picture for me. It's February 12th, 2021, just two days before Valentine's Day. Governor Wolf signs the papers, and you're about to see your wife again. I would tell you honestly, it was extremely amazing and difficult at the same time. It was like a miracle. It brought a sense of anxiety, but also it was a great feeling of hope. Prison for me, it was a darkness I was in. And when I walked out, it seemed like everything was bright. Everything was beautiful. I could see everything. Dennis, how about for you? For me, it was bitter and sweet at the same time because my mother was no longer there. She never gave up with fighting with us. And to come home and for her not to be here, I mean, it was just so painful. But it felt good to be free. It was just unbelievable. I felt like I can breathe again. But at the same time, I'm still like bewildered because some may not even get this chance. And I want to see others that are deserving of the same opportunity to get it. We found our sense of purpose while we were in prison. And that purpose was helping others, helping others to know that prison, you may be here, but this is not who you are. And this is not who you have to be. And we did that by leading, by showing people we cared about them. And through that care and through that love, we begin to inspire men to be more hopeful about and more optimistic about their future. I mean, it's really just 
an amazing, amazing story of perseverance and triumph over struggle and tragedy. And, you know, the fact that you guys, with the inspiration and the support of your families and other people, were able to take this unimaginable burden and rise above it and turn it into something that enabled you to transform the lives of so many other people and that you're still doing it today. It's nothing short of, it's magical, really. It's incredible. And for the people who are listening right now, who are inspired and who are going to want to take action and make a difference because of what you guys have been able to accomplish, is there anything you guys want to suggest? Well, I just would say my call action would be to pay attention to what's going on out here in society and to support criminal justice reform. Every innocent man is not going to make it out of prison. And there's a lot left behind. So we need some sort of criminal justice reform to make a, a way for others to be able to come out. Now we come to the part of the show that's, the, well, it's the closing of the show, but it's become my favorite part of the show. And of course, it's called Closing Arguments. And I want to say, first of all, I appreciate you guys tremendously just for being here and telling and sharing your story. You know, you guys are heroes to me and so many other people. And I'm excited to get this out there and get this story out in a way, in the way that it should have been told from the very beginning. And so, closing arguments. What we do here, how this works, is I'm just going to turn my microphone off and leave both of yours on. And I'm going to just sit back in my chair and listen to anything that you feel has been left unsaid. So, Dennis, how about you go first, and then Lee, you'll be batting cleanup. So, folks, first of all, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to my brother and I recount our story. The thing is this. At the end of the day, the people control the system. The system don't control you. But we've gotten to a place where we allow the system to control us. This is supposed to be our system. And we're supposed to hold people accountable for the decisions they make on our behalf. So the only thing I would say is please get involved and know with the prosecutors, know with the district attorney, know what the police are doing on your dime. Because we pay the taxes that pay their salaries. And if this is how they're doing business, then we need to make sure we hold them accountable. My brother and I, we're free, but there are countless others that are not free. My grandma once told us that life gives you what life gives you. And it's up to you to make something out of it. So. When we went to prison, that wasn't the end of our story. That was just another leg in our journey. The next part of our journey, we hope, is spectacular. We want to do a lot of things out here in society. We did a lot of positive work inside, and we want to do a lot of positive work out here. And so what I would say is make sure you pay attention to what's going on. And when somebody say they've been wrongfully convicted, try to give them the benefit of the doubt because they could be just like us, two individuals who just took a ride and wind up being arrested and sent away and spent 28 years trying to come back home. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, 
Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.